0: stand this morning, so we can just recognize you. We sure would appreciate that. Anybody here this morning? There there they go. Okay. We appreciate your sacrifices. We have, uh, you know, we we take things for granted. We've had it so good in our nation. And I know that things um, from a Christian perspective may seem like they're deteriorating at a rapid rate, but we still very arguably uh, live in the the greatest nation that history has ever known, that mankind has ever known, and a lot of that is in part to the, the attitude of our military. And no matter what race, no matter what gender, no matter what faith, these men and women preserve what we know of as America and our Constitution. We're very, very blessed and very grateful for the sacrifices that people Make So that we can continue on in the America that we know. Thank you so much. God bless you guys and girls for serving us so well. Well, we, um, as you know, we're in our final chapter of the book of Nehemiah. It has not been a very light hearted chapter, it has been, uh, the fireworks have been flying, you might say, because this great reformer, this great man, Nehemiah, is very upset. At the state that he has found his country or his nation. We've seen in this last chapter that he is angry at the evil of toleration. The people of God are no longer zealous to protect God's ways and God's law, but they're just fudging here and compromising there. He's angry about that, and he's also angry about... The fact that he has found them profaning the Sabbath, this holy day that God has set apart for them to to not live in as if it is just another day of the week, but to rest in it and and to serve and worship the Lord in it. And so they are defiling that. And then lastly, now we're looking at another reason that he's angry, and that is because of the way that they have decided to do their marriage in the family, the way they've decided to do life in the home. He's very, very upset at the direction that that has taken. And not only does he give a little tongue lashing with his words, but he literally gives a physical lashing, as we will see when we conclude this chapter and conclude the series on the book of Nehemiah. So let's turn to chapter 13, and I will read once again verses 23 through 31. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon king of Israel sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women?" And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. We've been looking at three primary things in this passage defiant matrimony, we looked at that last week, uh, deficient leadership, and disastrous ramifications of these things. Last week we traveled back into Genesis when we. Looked at this point concerning defiant matrimony, and we, we looked at the threefold process in Genesis that God established for marriage, and they were not following this process. This morning, we're going to tackle the last two points in this passage. So what's another reason that Nehemiah is angry? Nehemiah is angry at the decisions that the fathers are making, the husbands are making. They are failing to lead their families spiritually, and in particular, they are failing to lead their children and invest in their children spiritually. How do you know that? How do you get that out of a passage like this? Nehemiah points out the fact, or emphasizes the fact, that the people... That the offspring from the foreign wives that they decide to marry don't even know the language of Judah. They're strictly, they're they're staying in their own culture. They're they're only uh, learning their own language, their own traditions. Of course, the false gods are involved in this. It's not a matter of race. That is that is defiling the law of God. It's a matter of the fact that they do not worship Yahweh. They worship false gods and they have their own way of worshiping their false gods. Many of which are in violation of the ways of God. A matter of fact, it is these. It is this kind of worship and lifestyle that calls God to basically kick the Canaanites and the Philistines and all the people in the Palestine area out of that land. The time was ripe for their sins to be judged. And now the people of God that are supposed to be separate from those other people, uh, the other religions, supposed to be separated from them, are now embracing them as a part of their family. And they're not doing it for evangelistic purposes. They're taking these women because apparently they're attracted to them or for whatever reason. And then they're, they're having children and they're not bothering to invest in their children to teach them the language of the Bible. And the reason it's a big deal and Nehemiah is making much about it is because this is the language of Hebrew that the Bible was written in and also very much in that day passed down orally. Not everybody had their own copy of a a Bible. The printing press wasn't even invented yet. And for you to even own a scroll of any kind meant that it had been meticulously scribed. Or written down, copied, letter by letter, sentence by sentence. Every word and letter counted so that there was no error in it. Most of these stories in this law, these laws were memorized and they were passed down orally to the people. So if you have children in your household and they don't even know the language that you're speaking, the obvious conclusion is that these fathers are not leading their children spiritually. They're not taking the time to invest in them, to teach them the language of the law of God so that they can teach them the law of God, that they can hear the stories of their great heritage and the great saving acts of God. You might say that they are basically biblically illiterate. And this is of great concern to Nehemiah. Because if the ways of God are not passed down by the parents, then they're not passed down. Because the parents have been entrusted with the ways of God. And it is their responsibility to... To pass these down. At least that's what the Scriptures teach as far as, well, who's responsible ultimately for passing down the truths of God? And God holds the parents ultimately responsible for passing down the truths and the ways of God. There are other means that God uses as well. But the parents are primarily responsible and the fathers ultimately responsible for that. So not only is it God's plan that the two shall become one flesh and be fruitful, Lord willing, but it's also God's plan that mom and dad sit the little fruits down so that they can teach them the ways of God. It's a continuation. Deuteronomy eleven nineteen says you shall teach them. To your children, talking about the commandments of God, the commandments of God were of the utmost importance for the people of God. It's what they rallied themselves around. It's what they had in common. It's what all the other nations didn't have. It's the word of God, the revelation of God. And God says in Deuteronomy, you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. How important are the commandments of God to be passed down? It is every waking hour, every waking conscious moment, there are opportunities that parents have to implement and pass down the ways of God. Why is this so important? There are many reasons, but the primary reason, and if you're a parent you know this, is that our children do not naturally absorb the commandments of God. They do not naturally love and pick up on the the ways of God and the things of God because there's something that inevitably gets in the way of them loving God and giving their hearts to God. And that is loving themselves too much because of our sinful nature. That is how we come into the world. Our natural tendency is not to love and follow God and serve God and to just cherish his commandments. Our natural tendency is to look for ways to get around them, to circumvent them so that we can love ourselves and opt God out of the picture. Maybe just keep him in there enough to make ourselves look good. But ultimately, our motive is to serve ourselves, to look out for our own interest. And so our kids don't just naturally, they're not naturally born with this righteousness and this yearning to be at church and this yearning to to love God and be after in His Word. These things have to be passed down. They have to be modeled. They have to be taught. Children have to be taught God's standard. They're not going to get it on their own. We've been studying Ephesians in adult Sunday school, and the Apostle Paul tells us that our minds are darkened. Now, that's a scary thought. For our minds to be darkened, for us to come in the world that way, because what it means is that we're not going to observe the world and draw the right conclusions on our own. We won't draw the right conclusions concerning salvation and how the world works without a supernatural innovation from uh, intervention from God, or at least a supernatural revelation from God. We're not going to pick it up. And you can look at many, many people groups today that are void of the word of God, and you can see how they do life. And we would consider it, from a Christian perspective or a biblical perspective, uh, evil or wicked or backwards. See, the word of God is very, very important. It's what makes us, uh, it's what we rally around. It's our practice. It's our constitution, if you will. This is what we believe in and how we're going to live life and how we're going to preserve our beliefs. And so this is a crisis and, and this is something that Nehemiah is... Facing behind all of this evil is the breaking of commandments, a natural tendency to do something to do so. Now, we were a few several weeks ago. I mentioned the comment from Martin Luther. He said, if we just obeyed the one, the first commandment, that one commandment, we wouldn't struggle with the other nine. Well, what is the first commandment? Love the Lord God with all your heart. You, you shall serve only God. If we loved God with all our hearts, would we be interested in, in taking his name in vain and, and crafting idols for worship and profaning the Sabbath and murdering and committing adultery and lying and cheating and coveting? Would we have any desire to do that if all our hearts wanted was to love God and serve God and glorify God and, and lift him up and exalt him? No. We break that commandment. And therefore, all the other ones in one degree or another are broken. God's plan, he doesn't leave us in this darkness, but God's ultimate plan is that there are ample opportunities for children to be exposed to his truths, for his truth to be modeled, for grace and light to come into that darkness. And it is primarily through the parents in in a home setting, if you will, some kind of household setting. Why the home? Well, because there are endless possibilities of learning situations in the home. Now, uh, we homeschooled our kids. And there were times where it was, God's word was taught or passed down, very informal occasions that might have just been uh, morning devotions or nighttime bed stories they're still in their jammies whatever it's very loose or you know they, maybe it's early in the morning they still got breakfast cereal dripping from their their cheeks and stuff like that uh, and it's fun there are also formal times where i taught them bible that was one of my jobs and we actually sat in the schoolroom and they sat in their chairs at their desks and they had books and we went over them and i lectured them about scriptures and they had assignments they had homework but so within the home there, there are countless opportunities and ways to pass down the word of god formal and informal and not only through lecturing and teaching but also through modeling and also looking at the world and everything that you experience as a family how are you going to react to what's happening in the world how are you going to react to what's happening to your family or members in your family how can you bring god's word to apply to all of the countless situations that we face it's, it's a constant on-the-job training, if you will, pointing out examples of goodness and evil and wickedness. And, of course, we don't have to just look on the outside to find examples of evil because of the sin nature. They are in our own homes. If you have children, I trust that you have found that to be true. And those are also... Great opportunities to teach the gospel of Christ. So when big brother pushes little brother down the steps and there he goes down the steps, tumbling and you get them both together and, and you give them a teaching moment, a beautiful, unexpected teaching moment. Look what you have done to your little brother. There is blood pouring out of his nose. It is crooked. It's broken because you could not keep your anger in check. You pushed him down the steps and now look. He's crying, crocodile tears, he's in great pain. And not only that, look, his arm's just dangling. <laughs> his, his arm its dislocated, look at it. It's just, it, it, it. Because you could not keep your anger in check, now his arm is out of check, it's out of place. And now we got to take him to the hospital. And now dad is tempted to be angry because of what it's going to cost him through Obamacare to pay for this hospital bill. And it's all because of this angry situation that's come. And I know that you wish that you could go back and that it never happened. But you can't go back, and it did happen. But here's what you can do. You can take this junk and that and that bad decision and that, that evil, and you can bring it to the cross. And with a sincere heart, you can own it And tell God about it and ask for Jesus's forgiveness and he will forgive you because he says that's what he does in his word. And you can start fresh and you can actually learn from this example. You can learn from this failure. And as was sung, God gives us the power, not easy, but he gives us the power to live for him. So there are all these wonderful ways that we can teach our children um, about the ways of God. Obviously, mom and dad are in that strategic place to ensure that the, the children are getting uh, their biblical needs met. And it's from morning to night. From morning to night. Now, you know this. I mean, we, we teach them good stewardship at the grocery store. No, we're not going to buy that brand. We're going to buy this brand. It's good stewardship. There's no difference between the two other than a colorful box, perhaps. And we can teach them loving their neighbor by taking the shopping cart back to where it belongs instead of leaving it in the parking spot so the next person doesn't have a place to park because somebody left their shopping cart right in the middle of the parking spot. You can teach them to love their neighbor just like that. We can teach them mercy and they've done something wrong. And they come, and they know they're going to get disciplined, and you explain to them what they have done wrong, and they understand it, and they get it. And then you say, you deserve to be disciplined, and they understand, and then, and they get it. And then you say, but I'm not going to discipline you. I'm going to have mercy on you today, just like God has mercy on us. There's many times He doesn't give what we deserve, and the kids walk around, walk away like, I can't believe it. I just got is this. This not working. You got to turn them on. That's the first time that's ever happened. Seriously. That's not a good sign. That's a sign of the end times or the end of these times, one or the other. What were we talking about? Oh yeah, so opportunities to teach your kids like mercy. We've done that in our house. They knew they were they knew they were getting something, but they didn't. And it's a, it's a perfect opera. Teach them humility by uh, teaching them to congratulate the person that just beat them in whatever kind of competition that they were in. They congratulate that there's, there's just countless opportunities to bring in the ways of God, the very things that make us different, that are supposed to make us different than those that opt out of it and just live according to the flesh, of course, how we react to things as parents in the home. When we get a bill that we don't think we deserve, or a phone call that we don't think we deserve, or some some kind of altercation, how we respond to these kind of things when we don't get our way, we are teaching our children the importance of living biblically. The sad thing about this scene in Jerusalem is that by not investing in their kids by not taking the time to teach them the ways of God. And yeah, it is time consuming to do this. What they're really teaching them is that God's not really worth it. The the, the effort that I would have to put forth in teaching you the language of the Bible, teaching you to be biblically literate, teaching you about uh, the uniqueness of God and the ways of God... It's just not really worth it. The sacrifice. That's the scary thing. And when, when we're not doing it, it, it's its not so it's bad enough that we're not teaching them what they need to know. But it's what we are teaching them in its place, because there's always something in the place of it that we're teaching them. It's not that they're not learning anything. All of our decisions are and actions are communicating to them we're teaching them that you know theology doesn't really matter it's not that important just pick up whatever you can from the world you don't have to go to the source you don't have to actually sit down and spend time pouring yourself into it knowing the right god in the right way isn't worth it the powerful thing about parenthood is that we have all these opportunities to teach our kids about jesus there's countless opportunities to expose them to the truth in the hopes that one day they will see it and own it for themselves. Yes, I see my sin. I see Christ as a Savior. I need salvation based on the condition of my heart, and I confess Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, what are these dads keep teaching their kids if they're not teaching them the Bible? Well, we know that they're teaching them to tolerate evil. They're teaching them that you know, the way that the temple used to be constructed is not as important anymore. And so it's okay for people that don't only worship God to come in and take residence. They're teaching them to work on the Sabbath. Which means that they're teaching them that the value of the dollar is more important than the value of the God that they say they serve and live according to it. So they are the, the teachings of God are being replaced by other teachings. And let me just state the obvious when the ways of God are not passed down, especially by the parents then who is learning them or how will they be taught? They won't. and we can read about it in this Day and age of Nehemiah, but we can also and have heard about it in the midst of our own congregation. When we hear testimonies about weekday religious education, which is a very rare opportunity for uh, for children in this county to be exposed to Bible stories and family in our own congregation, uh, the woods engage in this and they make the sacrifices a very um, meager funded ministry. And we have heard that, even recently, that there are people, even in this county, in the Bible Belt, there are kids that come to this Bible class and they do not know any Bible. They are literally, biblically illiterate. They don't know the stories that we grew up learning. They don't know about Christ coming in the world. They don't know about the cross. They've celebrated Christmases, but they've they've never heard why we really celebrate, uh, celebrate Christmas. Right here in our own county. It can happen. It is happening. When there's no one there to pass it down. When it's compromised in that kind of way. Next thing you know, you have a generation that really does not know their Bibles. Biblically illiterate. So Nehemiah is angry that the dads are ignoring their children and pursuing their own interests. Pursuing their own gain. Working all the time. Investing their money instead of investing spiritual seeds. Of course, we see this today as well. We see that the men opt to do other things and not make spiritual things a priority. And it's a temptation for us as men to to make work our main focus. We were created to work and to take dominion. And because of our fallen nature, sometimes we do that at the expense of knowing and loving God. In, in our culture, I'm not sure if this is world. I think this is a worldwide st- statistic. Sixty percent of Christians are females. So that leaves 40 percent of the men. So it's predominantly becoming a, a female faith. So the, the females are more active. We see this, of course, in our culture, and in our churches. A lot, of church, a lot of today's churches, the females, are more active at keeping that church alive and vibrant. So 60-40 in our culture. One of the least likely people in our culture, or call them a people group if you will, least likely people in our culture to set foot in a church are young men in their 20s. That's, that's a accurate statistic young many young people in their 20s in general but particularly young men in their 20s are a rare sight in churches today in our culture if you're here and you're a young man in your 20s and then then you should be applauded for the decisions that you are making that are very countercultural because there's not a camaraderie there to do it that's the culture that we are seeing right now it's female driven what happens a lot of times the dads aren't involved in, in getting the kids to church they don't care maybe they don't go themselves and many times it's the moms that drag the kids to church they know it's important you got to have sunday school you need to hear god's word i'm dragging you to church oh but i want to stay home dad gets to stay home and watch tv no you're coming with me and then it just transitions right on into adulthood and they marry uh, these kids that really don't want to go to church, but were, they were dragged to church. They get married and then who drags them to church? Their wife. If they go to church at all, it's because their wives see the importance of it and their wives drag them to church. That's the culture that we are creating for ourselves even within Christendom. And so many people are... Biblically illiterate. I've counseled people in this situation. You know that we do premarital counseling. If somebody wants me to officiate the service, the wedding ceremony, that's what um, is a prerequisite. And Lisa and I counsel people like that and try to get them at least give them a fighting chance and get them started on the right foot. And I have uh, one of our biggest concerns is what is your commitment to church? Because church, your church community is very, plays a A significant part in your relationship and your family life and your marriage. So what is your commitment to church? And sometimes you have one that is committed to church. Usually it's the female. And the other one, the guy who's not really committed. So I say, well, then what is your plan? What makes you think that you will be committed in this relationship and take spiritual leadership now or after the ceremony when you're not doing it now? And I have heard it say... That, well, I'm counting on her to inspire me because she's a faithful churchgoer and I'm counting on her to kind of get me out of bed in the morning on Sundays so I'll start going to church. Very, very rarely happens in in real life. Very, very rarely happens that the man just wants the woman to, to be the total inspiration and to make up for his failures. sad situation. It's a crisis. It's a crisis that they are facing. If our mothers, guys, if if your mommies are dragging you to church, you're in trouble with God. And guys, if your wives are dragging you to church, you're in trouble with God. And if... Our society, if wives and women are dragging the men to church, then our society is in trouble. Our church is in trouble because there are not the godly leaders there to look up to. Think about what Nehemiah is up against. These men are marrying foreign women, women that worship different gods. They have their own faith, their own teachings, their own traditions. Their own way of worship. So this is kind of like what we have a three day weekend here and some of the single guys going off and they come back next Sunday and say, Pastor Paul, I want to introduce you to my new wife. Sweet little Mormon girl. And here's her sister, too. We got hitched uh, over the weekend. Different set of beliefs or here, I want to introduce you to my Jehovah's Witness wife or my Muslim wife or my Hindu or my Buddhism wife. You, you just brought a, a whole new set of values and a way of doing things, a whole different view of worship and even what God is and how he is to be worshipped and who he is. All that right into your life and just messed. The, I would, would you consider that a crisis if that was happening in this congregation? That's what's happening in their congregation. So no wonder Nehemiah, who knows the difference, and he knows that they know the difference because they've been exposed to God's word, and yet they are allowing it to happen. They are ga- they are engaging in this kind of violation of God's word. And he looks to the men. He's beating on the men here, pulling out their hair. I don't know about the pulling out of the hair. It's kind of something that usually girls do. I don't know. I mean, I did it when I was real young. My bigger brother, or mostly bigger sister, if they, when they could beat me up, I admit it. There was a time when my older sisters could beat me up. Uh, sometimes in desperation, I had to pull hair to get out of a situation. I don't know what's going on here with Nehemiah. It's a little disappointing, but I wasn't there. Uh, I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly. But, but he's holding the men responsible. The bottom line is, we, we can't count on the church. We can't count on the Christian schools and the Sunday school programs and the youth groups and the Bible studies to do our job for us. Those are wonderful gifts of God that are supplementary, that that come alongside and help us do our job. But the buck stops with mom and dad to pass it down. And then. Lastly, the disastrous ramifications. So to make matters worse, not only are they marrying foreign women, but Nehemiah blasts them because they are they are giving their daughters to godless men and then they are giving their sons to godless women. So this cycle of intermarriage of faiths just continues and it's it's wrong and it's dishonoring. But what do you do about it? They're in a hard position because Nehemiah is, is confronting them about it, giving their daughters and sons in violation. Yet, it's the very thing that they have done. So, to call them down on it would make them hypocrites. So, yeah, you're, you're asking me to do something that... You're asking me not to do something, uh, Dad, that, you know, look at Mom. What is she? So, it, it, it's a terrible situation, really... What has happened is that um, there's not a lot that they can do about it. Well, there is, but we'll talk about that in a second. But what has happened is they've lost their spiritual authority. They've been put in this place where they've lost their spiritual authority because they are not doing the very thing that they would have to call their kids out to not do. And when you, it's kind of like do what I say, not what I do kind of philosophy that doesn't work very well. And when you do not live it yourself, you lose that spiritual authority. You people don't take you serious. I mean, I don't take you serious if you're going to tell me to do something that you do. or, or however, I was supposed to say that. Uh, tell me to do not to do something that you do. Am I supposed to take you serious? It's just there's just not much weight there. And so they have compromised their spiritual authority because their own spiritual leadership is corrupt. See, when we, when we don't repent of our own failures and we continue to live in them and not choose to change by the grace of God, then we have lost our spiritual authority. People don't take us serious. We got to walk the talk. Now when we, when we walk the talk, When we fight our own battles, when we have proven to be victorious, and maybe we struggled in the past, but now we have overcome this, then we can speak with authority and people will listen. I remember um, that my older sister, when one of my nieces was about ready to start school, she's way out of school, married with kids now, but um, she said, um, and I'm... Don't know the exact words, but in essence, she was saying, now I'm expecting you to behave yourself and in essence, come back out of your college experience morally pure because I did it. See that that's authority. When you say I did it all of a sudden, somebody can't come up with an excuse. Well, I can't do it. You don't understand. I did it. I I had friends. I had temptations. I had peer pressure. I've got hormones. I know what it's like. I'm a human. And we like to put ourselves in these little classifications of, yeah, but you don't understand and it's impossible for me. I can't do it. That's not scriptural. No temptation or all temptation is common to man, basically. So none of us are in this. And so when we we, as our parents... As parents, when we repent and change our ways, then we can speak with spiritual authority and we can say, oh, yes, you can, because I did it. You can't tell me that it's impossible if I did it, if I fought the hard battles and it carries a lot of weight. Unfortunately, they have compromised this and it's having a disastrous ramification because the men are not repenting of it. So really what's happening is this. Because of their their short sightedness, they are compromising their spiritual legacy. The lineage, think about it, the lineage. The decisions that the dads are making in their their time of space and history. It's not just about them. They might think, oh, good, I'm getting what I want, I'm getting away with it, I'm defying God. No, it's going to be passed down through the lineage. And the the whole, everything that comes from them, it can be compromised. And they're building, instead of building roads that, that always point our kids to Christ and forging paths, they're forging paths that actually are leading their kids away from God. And so those kids get away from God and then they lose, they can lose touch completely. So the whole spiritual lineage is being compromised because of these decisions that are being made by these men. They're destroying it. Their godly legacy. And so, Nehemiah is very angry and he fights with these men. He fights with these men that have failed to fight for their own families and for their own godly heritage. And he's, he gets very radical. Here he picks a fight for with these guys that have lost their fight for their legacy. It's a fight for the city. It's a fight for the church. It's a fight for the faith. A fight that he thinks is worth fighting. He wants to right this wrong. Verse 25, he confronts them. He confronts them. He's cussing at them, it says. Cursing them. Well, cheese and crackers, guys. Get on the... <laughs> I don't know what he said in that day, but he did it and he beats them. So he's he's cursing them, uh, maybe imprecatory prayers, you know, uh, may you come down with a terrible case of hemorrhoids and may you get splinters and, and toothaches and paper cuts to the end of your days unless you change your ways. And he's beating on them. What do you do with that? He's beating on them. He's throwing punches. That's what it says. You know, I don't know what to do with that. I wouldn't recommend... I'm not recommending that spiritual leaders beat the people that are out of line in their congregations. I don't think you'd get away with that today. I'm certainly not. But the only thing I can... my, My thought is that he's just trying to knock some sense into these guys, for lack of better words. He's desperate. It's a crisis. They didn't do it on their own. They're not upset about this. He gets upset and he's trying to make a statement and he's trying to literally knock some sense into them to wake them up out of their spiritual stupor. So he confronts them. He takes the initiative to say this is wrong. This is how you're supposed to be living. Something has to be done. He, and he tries to um, get them to take oaths. He wants immediate action. You don't just want to just leave it open ended, take an oath that you're going to change. Admit with me that this is wrong and do something about it, because if you don't, you're going to be just as doomed as you were before God was so gracious and kind to restore you to this position. Confrontation. I know that. it's not very popular in our age of toleration. We're not allowed to confront each other because that says I got a standard that you're violating and my Mm -hmm. standard's better than yours and I actually know right from wrong and and we're not supposed to know that in this day and age. Everybody's supposed to be on equal footing and no lifestyle or belief or truth or God is any better than anybody else and it's just wrong to even think that way. But I know that it takes tact. I know that it takes courage. It shouldn't be obnoxious. It shouldn't be... Vengeful, but neither should we just be passive. And here's the thing. Even though our culture tells us not to confront, and there is a biblical way to do it, if we're not going to do it, then we should just get more uh, accommodating to sin, to more and more sin, because if we fail to confront, that's the disastrous ramification, right? If nobody's going to stand up and say no at wrongdoing, then the person's just going to keep doing the wrong doing. I mean, you know how it is with kids. If if you're watching them and they're, they're getting closer and closer to the thing they're not supposed to be doing and you don't say anything, you just watch them and act like you don't care, they're going to do it. There needs to be some intervention. There needs to be some confrontation. So I would say that if we don't like to confront, then we better get used to swimming in sin because that is a result. Confrontation is a deterrent. It's a biblical deterrent to sin. James 520. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I like this little story from Mark Driscoll um, that he tells about. About. Well, you'll see. He says he, he met this guy. He's an MMA fighter. He's an ultimate fighter A mixed martial arts. Just, so you know, these guys are pretty tough. And um, this MMA guy, he was a trainer. He was a strong believer. He loved the Lord. And he went to one of Driscoll's churches. Uh, this guy coaches younger fighters and so forth. So um, Mark Driscoll strikes up a conversation with him. He says, so I, I coach a lot of pastors. And so I said, what do you do with a guy who just doesn't submit to authority? They're not going to obey this chain of command. They don't want to listen. They just do whatever they want to do. They don't do what they're told. They're rebellious, stiff-necked, hard-hearted, and stupid. What do you do with these guys? And the fighter responded, uh, i break their nose. And he said, uh, could you could you explain this to me? And he's, you know, he's getting ready to take copious notes to figure out how you can... He said, yeah, I break, I break his nose. If one of these guys in my fighter camp that I'm training, if he won't play by the rules, he won't listen to respect authority, if I let him get away with it, I'll have anarchy on my whole team. And next thing you know, nobody's doing what they're told to do. Everything falls apart. The whole program falls apart. So I warn him. I say, you knock it off or I'm going to put you in the ring. I'm going to put you in the ring and I'm going to take you down and I'm going to break your nose. If they disobey and they disrespect me and they disregard me, I put them in the ring, I take them down, and I bust their nose. He says, so, when you look at my team, all the good the guys with the good attitude, they're the ones with the crooked noses. <laughs> so, maybe this is what's happening in, in Nehemiah's day. You know, he, he's so... Angry, he doesn't know exactly what to do. The lectures aren't working. And so he just is trying to knock some sense into these people, throwing punches, maybe pulling hair, whatever. It's just this this wake up call, because if it it continues to spread, it's anarchy. It's the faith as we know it gone again. Save the grace of God. He's literally trying to change the course of of history he's changing the course of the people of god the decisions that we make as parents and as disciples and how we live for christ today does change the course of christianity and the course of faith and the degree of faith that we have and that we model in each other's midst It's kind of like when we were kids, you know, we'd get little scraps and we'd hold each other down until finally somebody would give. And you say, you just keep holding them in there, keep squeezing and say, do you give? Do you give? No, no. Do you give now? Okay, I give. You're stuck. I think Nehemiah is trying to get him to give. Just give. Just give into God's ways again. Don't go. Don't go there anymore. It's too painful. It's too destructive. Wake up. And he gives an example about Solomon I won't take the time to talk about. But you know, even with the love of God on Solomon and all the wisdom he had, foreign women took him away. What makes you think it will be any different from you? You're not as smart as Solomon was. And you don't love God as much as Solomon did. And he got swept away. Come on, guys. Think about what is happening. Don't let it happen. And even in the leadership... We have this priest that he he decided not to fight. Not to fight first family and married, now they've got pagans into their family. They got this mixed family. It just goes to show you that and that was with Sam at the Horonite, and Nehemiah says, So I chased him away. Why would he chase him away? I guess he was worn out from throwing punches and he just didn't have much energy. So he just had to chase him. He couldn't do anything other than that. And maybe apparently the guy was faster than he was and he got away. But he tried. He chased him. It goes to show that not all spiritual leaders do a good job at leading their families and fighting the fight for the legacy. So he allowed it into his home. A disregard for God. So to close... Nehemiah catches his breath after chasing this guy. And he restores order. And he puts reliable men in charge. Verses 30 through 31. He restores the order. And then the book that opened with prayer, if you remember, also closes with prayer. Remember me, oh my God, for good. When he arrived in the city, the people people's lives were in ruins. The city was in ruins, but he, he, he rebuilt them. And now the city is falling into, re, into ruins again in their lives or on the brink of ruins. And he's saying, God has done a kind thing to bring you back here. Basically, don't go down that road again. Don't let your hearts grow cold again. And in essence, he's telling the Lord, you know, God, I know that right now my role as a leader is not a popular one. I get more dirty looks than I do kind looks. I get more hate mail than I do fan mail. And my knuckles are bruised and hurt because I'm not used to hitting people. My knuckles aren't tough. So my hands hurt. But I believe in doing right. And this is right. I think this is right. So remember me, God. Bless me for my meager efforts to honor you and to fight for you. Oh, my God. For good. May God bless the preaching of his word.